This is episode 305 of That Shakespeare Life. You can watch special behind-the-scenes content of the making of That Shakespeare Life, as well as get insider Shakespeare extras available right now on Patreon. There's bonus episodes, documentary films, and classroom resources that coordinate with our show and with Shakespeare's plays. Learn more at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife, and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm David Crystal. I'm an academic professor of linguistics at the University of Bangor in Wales here in the UK and the co-author with Sun Ben of uh, Everyday Shakespeare, Lines for Life, which has just come out in 2023. So that's one way of studying Shakespeare. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes, of course, listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. So it's set in distant times and places. Its characters are princes and princesses and knights and ladies. And lots of strange things happen to them. Uh, Often there are lots of enchantments that fall upon them. They have to deal with giants and dragons. And usually romances have long rambling plots with multiple strands. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When it comes to the printed word for Shakespeare's lifetime, novels as we know them today did not exist. However, telling romantic stories was certainly something that existed, and many of these romance prose pieces were not only highly popular, but they were dedicated to women. None of Shakespeare's works actually use the word romance, despite all the love and entanglement that happens there. So that led me to wonder exactly what romance fiction was for Shakespeare's lifetime, which is why we've invited our guest this week, Helen Hackett, author of Women and Romance Fiction in the English Renaissance, to visit with us today and introduce us to romance fiction as a genre for Shakespeare's lifetime, explain what it means, and give us some examples of how it interacted with Shakespeare's works. Helen Hackett is Professor of English Literature at University College London, with particular expertise in 16th and 17th century literature. Her most recent book, The Elizabethan Mind, is a study of how Shakespeare and his contemporaries thought about the mind in relation to the body, the soul, and the self, and how their turbulent debates on this subject shaped their radical literary innovations. Her many other publications cover fields like Shakespeare studies, literary images of Elizabeth I, and writings by and about early modern women. You can find links to her work and more information on Helen in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Helen. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hello, Cassidy. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. While the novel as we know it today didn't exist as a printed format for Shakespeare's lifetime, prose fiction was available and romance was a popular topic. Helen, define this genre for us as it existed for Shakespeare's lifetime. There's really a a difference in terminology between Shakespeare's period and our own. So when we talk about romance, we almost always mean love stories and we're quite specific. That's what romance is to us. But when we talk about romance in Shakespeare's time, it's a much broader term. It really encompasses pretty much all the fiction that was around at that time. What it has in common 
with romantic fiction now is the idea of of escapism. And really, romance is a term that, if we're thinking about literary history, literary criticism, it gets used in opposition to the novel. So the novel is a genre that emerges in the 18th century. And what's new about the novel is it's concerned with realism and with the here and now. So its main characteristic, the main characteristic of the novel is that it's realistic. The main characteristic of romance, which is the kind of fiction that precedes the novel, is that it's not realistic. It's not interested in realism. It's very fantastical. So it's set in distant times and places. Its characters are princes and princesses and knights and ladies. And lots of strange things happen to them. Uh, Often there are lots of enchantments that fall upon them. They have to deal with giants and dragons. And usually romances have long rambling plots with multiple strands. And they have certain formulaic plot motifs, things like oracles, enchantments, shipwrecks, lost children, all those kinds of things. Now, running through the centre of all of this, it's often quite a kind of plot tangle, but running through the centre of it, there's often a love plot providing a central thread, but it's by no means the only thing that's going on. There are lots of other things going on. So for the 16th century, romance, I suppose the term really would translate roughly into adventure or fantasy. It encompasses not just what we would call romantic fiction, but also what we call fantasy or uh, something like sword and sorcery. In many ways, it's closely related to the Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, as much as what we would think of as romantic novels like Harlequin in the US or Mills and Boone in the UK. But of course, what all these kinds of fiction have in common is escapism. It's that fantastic quality that marks out romance. I noticed when looking through Shakespeare's works to prepare for this episode that the word romance never gets used in Shakespeare's plays, which I find really surprising because Shakespeare usually has his finger on the pulse of current day events when uh, reflected in his plays. So if he wasn't using the term romance in his works, was the term romance in use for prose fiction at this time? Or would this genre have been called something else for the 16th and 17th century? I think writers in the 16th and 17th centuries would just have called their stories stories or maybe histories, which might seem surprising to us because we would think of a history as very much a true factual account of the past, but actually a bit like the French term histoire in the 16th century, a history is any kind of story. So I think um, the authors of what now get called romances when we're talking about the 16th century. They they would simply have called them stories or histories. Romance is really an invention of later literary critics and literary historians who are trying to find a term for these kinds of fantastical fictions that preceded the novel and that are recognisably different from the novel that emerges from the 18th century onwards, which is more domestic, more realistic, more set in the here and now. So who was the primary readership for this genre of fiction? When they printed it, who was it that was buying the most? Well, the short answer to that is that it's really hard to say, but I can explain quite a lot more about that. The the problem is that reading is something that doesn't leave much of a trace. So various historians have tried to measure literacy rates in Shakespeare's time. In other words, how many people actually simply could read. There's general agreement that literacy rates were were low, but being accurate about that is quite tough. We know that people were taught to read before they were taught to write. So Someone might not be able to write. They might just sign their name with a cross, which suggests that they're illiterate, but they might still have been able to read. So it's really hard to assess 
how many people actually could read in this period, but we think it was not a very high proportion of the population. Another way that we can assess readership is to look at the formats in which books were published. And romance seems to have been aimed at quite diverse readership. So some romances get published in grand, expensive formats, which would have been aimed at wealthy, aristocratic readers. And then some get published in simpler, cheaper formats, which would have been aimed at humbler readers. There's a format called chapbooks, which are almost like sort of pamphlets, which are quite cheap. So, so a wide range of readerships would have been able to access romance. It seems to, yeah, have attracted a, a, a diverse range of readers. And some romances are quite kind of mobile as well. They move between these elite editions and these cheaper, more humble editions. Within that, a really interesting question that's particularly interested me in my research is how much of a female readership there is for romance, because some historians of literature um, some time ago were suggesting that there was a growing female readership for romance and that this was a factor driving the number of romances being published. So I've been interested in trying to find out how kind of supportable that assertion is. It's certainly true that in the late 16th, early 17th centuries, there are various ways in which romance comes to be associated with women We find that some romances are dedicated to individual female patrons, female aristocrats, for instance. Some romances have prefaces which are addressed to women readers more generally, women readers as a group. But there are some problems with taking these dedications as evidence for a growing female readership. One is that question of literacy, because as I've said, we think literacy in this period was generally low. And we know that female literacy was much lower even than male literacy. uh, And there's no evidence that it was growing significantly. One of the leading historians in this field, he estimates that over 90% of women were illiterate. So we can't think in terms of a kind of mass market of women readers. Another problem is that moral writers, moralists of the period, were constantly telling women not to read romances, telling them that they would sort of lead them astray. And partly because of that, because romance has a very immoral image, very few women in the 16th century actually admit to reading romances. So, yeah, all of this presents quite a complex picture. So what we find, it seems like what might be happening is that associating romance with women is actually a way of suggesting to men that these books are fun, they're not too heavy, they're frivolous. What also happens as we move into the 17th century, romance begins to be seen as old-fashioned, as unfashionable, a bit down market. And that also comes along with an association with women. So in 1615, we get a satirical description of a chambermaid, which says that she reads Green's works over and over, Green being one of the main authors of romance. And it goes on, she's so carried away with the mirror of knighthood which is a chivalric romance, she has many times resolved to run out of herself and become a lady errant. Well, to be a lady errant would to be a, be to be a female knight or a warrior woman, but it's also a lady who's errant or wandering in moral terms. So it's really hard to be sure whether remarks like this are evidence that lots of non-elite women were actually reading romance or are romance is being associated with women as a way of saying in a very sexist way that these are books for the foolish, these are books for the ignorant, which women are assumed to be, without necessarily telling us anything about what real women were reading. 
I think it's obviously a complicated picture, but I think a reasonable conclusion we can draw is that there was a modest increase in the female readership for romances, and this was a modest factor in driving sales. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that it's often sequels that are addressed to women. For example, Painter's sequel to The Palace of Pleasure and Lily's sequel to Euphues. That suggests a perception that the first part of each of these works was successful with women because the second part gets addressed to women. But I think it's also likely that the female readership for romances was exaggerated for commercial and ideological reasons. It was a way of saying this is a feminine book and therefore it's frivolous, it's entertaining, and that's really in a way being addressed to men. Which is so funny because the modern romance genre, I realize they're not the same content as what they were in the 16th and 17th century, but a lot of these themes about how it's considered immoral and people sort of hide the fact that they read them and, you know, they're given as examples of a lesser, you know, people who read this are are not as valuable as as someone who reads something more substantial. All of those themes exist for the romance genre still today. So I find it really interesting that those were some of the opinions of it in the 16th and 17th century as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we have that word trash, as I said, you know, the word trash is used by Lily about his own book when he's presenting it to women as something they'll enjoy. Helen's work cites some examples of romance prose fiction where the work is dedicated to a woman. Helen, my first inclination with these dedications is to think that that's kind of fitting for a romance, you know, it, to it's a fitting dedication for the genre overall, but for a man to dedicate his work to a woman. But tell us about the women who are associated with this genre, both as the people having the work dedicated to them, but also influential figures in the development of this genre. Who were the women involved in romance prose fiction for 16th and 17th century England? Yes, well, as I mentioned, very few real women were actually admitting to reading romances in this period. It was very much frowned upon. And women mostly don't write romances either. That's a big difference from the modern day where most romances are written by women for women. But in the 16th century, it would have been seen as very unfitting for a woman to write a romance. Uh, There are some female writers in the period, but when they do write... They're usually writing in religious genres and they're usually writing translations. But there are a few exceptions to this. And I think they're really exciting women to talk about. I'm really glad to have the opportunity to introduce them to you and to your listeners, because I think they're just really impressive and really fascinating women. In the 1570s, there's a woman called Margaret Tyler, and she translates The Mirror of Knighthood. That's um, a chivalric romance originally written in Spanish. She translates it into English, and it's a huge bestseller, and it spawns many sequels by different authors and translators. And what's especially appealing, I think, to us is that Margaret Tyler writes a very feisty preface to her translation and she defends her transgressive act of translating a romance. She argues quite forcefully that since romances are often dedicated to women, they should be allowed to read them and they should go even further and translate them. But even she doesn't go as far as suggesting that women should write romances themselves. Even for her, that would seem too transgressive and actually no other women even followed her into translating romances you know even that although she puts out a kind of clarion call for other women to do it they don't 
Um, but nevertheless, that preface by Tyler, it's a really inspiring piece of writing. She's very self-conscious about being transgressive in translating a romance, but she does it anyway and she defends it. There's another woman who has a notable relation to romance, and this is Mary Sidney, Countess of Pembroke. She's the sister of Sir Philip Sidney. Now, he wrote one of the main romances of the period, which is called The Arcadia, and it's dedicated to his sister Mary. It becomes one of the most widely read and influential romances of the period. In that dedication, Philip describes it to Mary as done only for you, only to you. So we can think of her as a kind of muse to the work, really. And what happened was Philip died very young in the 1580s, shortly after, well, in fact, he didn't complete the Arcadia. And Mary oversaw its publication after his death. So we can think of her as having an editorial role in relation to this very important romance of the period. She's almost like its custodian, if you like, And then finally, we get the first prose romance in English authored by a woman. And this is in 1621. So we're now a few years on here by a woman called Lady Mary Roth, spelt W-R-O-T-H. She was, in fact, the niece of Philip and Mary Sidney, who I've just been talking about, the author and dedicatee of the Arcadia. So Mary Roth could build on a really strong family tradition of involvement in romance. And one thing that's particularly fascinating about her romance, the Urania, is that she incorporates stories from her life in it. Now, she was engaged through many years of her life in an affair with her cousin, William Herbert, Mary Sidney's son. He was very promiscuous. It's an adulterous affair. They're both married to other people. It's also, you know, very close to incest, really, because they're first cousins. And it's this very, it's evidently a very painful emotional experience for her. And she writes about it repeatedly in the main narrative and various inset narratives of the Urania. So it's almost as if writing a romance for her was a way of processing this difficult life experience, almost something that was quite therapeutic for her, which is something I find really fascinating. It is fascinating to think that she would, well, not only that she would write that and publish it, but that it would be well-received both from a woman, but about true stories and not have any dangerous blowback about that. There's a lot to unpack about there what was, she actually, wrote there. Oh, there uh, was. Actually, Did she get in trouble for publishing well, it? Well, it was, there was dangerous blowback, yeah. She did get in trouble for publishing it, actually not because she wrote about her own love affair, but because she wrote about stories of other courtiers and things that they'd been up to, and particularly about Sir Edward Denny, Lord Denny, who he had, his daughter had been having an adulterous affair and he he arranged a marriage for her and he behaved to her in a very threatening, very violent way. And Roth depicted all of this in the Urania and he attacked her. He wrote both a letter and a poem attacking her as a hermaphrodite for having written a romance and said, work other works, leave idle books alone for wise and worthier women have written on. Uh, And we have a letter from her to a prominent member of the government where she says she's calling in all the copies of the Urania, although we don't think she did because quite a few copies of it survive. But no, she did get in trouble for writing uh, about real life events that sometimes are a bit scandalous and not something people want to discuss, even in a fictional form. When you go airing people's dirty laundry, you can't be naming names. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, she did. You know, she didn't name names. She used fictional names, and I think she thought she'd be safe behind that. But people oh, recognize the people themselves and uh, recognized each other. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of a classic quandary there about writers and their work. Yeah, 
Yeah. How is 16th century romance prose fiction distinct from these older chivalric romances? Because I know the chivalric romance genre has existed a long time, but I think this that's being written in the 16th century is different. Well, yes and no. There are actually quite a lot, a lot of continuities. A lot of features carry over from chivalric romance and some of the chivalric romances themselves. So there are some older romances like Guy of Warwick and Bevis of Hampton. They continue to be very popular in the 16th century in that cut down form called chapbooks that I mentioned earlier. And some of the newer romances also continue those medieval traditions. So there are three cycles of chivalric romances, which begin in Spain and Portugal, and they become very popular in England. Uh, One is called Amadis de Gaulle. Another one is Palmerin of England. And the third one is The Mirror of Knighthood, which is the one that Margaret Tyler translated, uh, as I was speaking about a moment ago. And essentially, these are chivalric tales of the adventures of knights and ladies, uh, lots of fighting, lots of adventures in them. They're also imitated by some English authors like Emmanuel Ford. So that's chivalric vein of romance continues but one new development is the emergence of what's called novelle an italian word novelle so these are shorter stories which usually come from italian or french sources and sometimes they have their origin in real life scandals and they're published in collected volumes several collections of these are published in the 1560s and 70s they have um, some wonderful titles so william painter publishes a collection of novelle called painter's palace of pleasure and then George Petty publishes one called Petty's Petite Palace of Petty, His Pleasure. You seem to have to alliterate on P if you're publishing <laughs> one of these collections. And these volumes sometimes include addresses to female readers, sometimes of a very moralistic kind, saying don't behave like the evil woman in this story. Sometimes they're more flirtatious addresses to women readers, Petty in particular, where he reader that he's imagining actually to lean into the book and kiss him. These are also volumes that provided plots for many of the plays of the period. So Painter was one of Shakespeare's sources for Romeo and Juliet and also his source for All's Well That Ends Well and for other works. And the other development I would mention is a gradual movement of romance or or one strand of romance that becomes a roman à clé, stories with a key, using fiction as a way of telling scandalous stories from real life in an encoded form. And there's one early example of this from the 1570s by George Gascoigne. It's called The Adventures of Master F.J. And that seems to reveal the sexual shenanigans in a real provincial gentry household. He kind of tantalizes the reader by suggesting that there are real people behind the fictional names that he's using. Mary Roth in her Urania, she takes this further. She also uses romance-style stories to relate under the veil of fiction real events from her own private life and the lives of her circle. So although we think of romance as a fantastical genre through the novelle and through the through its movement towards being a romance à clay, in some instances, it's kind of flirting with real life as well, but still under the guise of fantastical stories. Now, you've mentioned several writers here, like Painter and Petty and, of course, Gascoy. And I wonder if these were the major players in this genre. I mean, were these the most popular writers of romance prose fiction during the 16th and 17th century? And what are some examples of works we have surviving from the period that you would say, you know, if you're going to go explore this genre, you should check out this one and go, this is an example of what I'm talking about. What are some of those that you can suggest for us? Yeah, I think there are a couple more 
authors to mention. I mean, first of all, I think I'll just return to Philip Sidney, author of The Arcadia. That's probably the most widely read and influential 16th century romance. It's circulated in lavish, expensive formats for elite readers, but also some of its episodes came into circulation in cut-down chapbook form. So it had a really wide reach and it was widely read for centuries, it also contributed to that association of romance with women. So Sidney dedicated it to his sister, Mary Sidney. He wrote it while staying with her during a period when he was banished from court because he had annoyed Queen Elizabeth. And actually within the narrative, the two heroes are taking a break from chivalric quests to woo two princesses in the countryside. One of those heroes, one of those princes, disguises himself as a woman to get access to the princess he's trying to woo. And that dedication that Sidney writes to his sister and other moments in the text suggests that he saw himself as being effeminized by spending time away from court, away from public business, writing a romance uh, on his sister's estate. So the Arcadia is really important, and that's one that's available today if people wanted to take a look at it. There are actually two versions, the old Arcadia, which is shorter and complete, and then the new Arcadia is an expanded version, which was left incomplete when Sidney died. Another important Author to mention is Robert Greene. He was very prolific, very popular. He wrote Pandosto, which is the source for The Winter's Tale, Shakespeare's play, The Winter's Tale. He's also the author referred to in the satirical portrait of a chambermaid I mentioned earlier, who's reading Greene's works over and over. This is Robert Greene. Thomas Nash, another contemporary author of his, he called Greene the Homer of Women, which may be because one of Greene's works was a collection of stories called Penelope's Web, uh, which he presents as the stories that Penelope and her ladies told each other while they were weaving and unweaving her web, waiting for Odysseus to come home. So in a way, Green's giving us, if you like, the kind of distaff side of the Odyssey. And again, he's offering male readers that opportunity of prying on the private world of women. Here are Penelope and her ladies. These are the kind of stories women tell each other when they're alone. And that's confirmed by Green's preface to male readers, where he said he knew that Mars will sometimes be prying into Venus papers and gentlemen readers desirous to hear the parley of ladies. Also important to mention is very popular romances in the period are the Spanish and Portuguese romance cycles that I've mentioned, such as Amadis de Gaulle, which generated multiple sequels. It's also, you can make comparisons here with modern soap opera. Um, Amadis was killed off in book eight. There are so many books of Amadis de Gaulle. It gets to book eight, it goes beyond. And of course, Amadis, you know, he's had sons and grandsons by now. Um, it's kind of ridiculous that he would keep going on and on. So the author who wrote Book 8 killed him off, but this produced a widespread public outcry. So Amadis had to be brought back from the dead in the next volume. Um, any of your listeners who are of a certain age like me will remember in the 1980s how in Dallas, uh, Bobby Ewing was killed off and then viewing figures slumped. And so he had to be brought back and the whole previous series had to be presented as just a dream. Something similar had to be done with Amadis because he was such a popular figure. Another sort of fun fact about Amadis, uh, I don't know if you know, but California is actually named after one of the magical lands in Amadis de Gaulle. It's actually named after an island that's populated by black Amazons, um, the Spanish explorers who made it to the western coast of North America, used the name California from Amadis de Gaulle. Now, in terms of 
reading romances today, which ones survive for people to go and read. I've mentioned the Arcadia. There are editions of the Arcadia widely available. But honestly, the honest answer is that even the Arcadia is not widely read outside universities. And the other ones I've mentioned are quite hard to get hold of today. They don't exist in modern editions. I think the legacy of Renaissance romance is really in modern popular culture, not only in our genre of romantic fiction, but also in works of fantasy like The Lord of the Rings, like Game of Thrones, even in superhero movies. Anything we have that's mythical and fantastical is actually in a line of descent from Renaissance romance. You referred earlier to Painter being a source for Romeo and Juliet, and then you're also mentioning some of these works being a source for The Winter's Tale. And I wonder if you could explain for us the overlap here between Shakespeare's plays and the romantic genre, because I know it's normal for printed works of fiction to be based on or influenced by works that came before them or even contemporary works that are circulating at the same time. And I would like to explore further where we can see this influence of the romantic genre on Shakespeare. Yeah, we know that Shakespeare loved romances because he very frequently used them as his sources. He clearly read them a lot. Uh, Just a couple of examples, As You Like It, is based on a romance by Thomas Lodge called Rosalind. The Winter's Tale, as I mentioned a few moments ago, is based on a romance by Robert Greene called Pandosto. And actually, there's a whole group of Shakespeare's own plays, four of his late plays, which often get called romances. Again, it's a later application of a critical term. It's really from the early 19th century onwards that these plays get grouped together and called romances. But the reason for that is because they share so many of the features of the prose fiction of Shakespeare's time. The four plays in question are Pericles, Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale and The Tempest. And they feature the kind of plot motifs used in romances like oracles, shipwrecks, missing children, enchantments, all that kind of thing. And they have the same sense as the prose romances of taking place in a timeless fairy tale world, a world where magic can happen and where lots of things inspire wonder. So Shakespeare very much is drawing upon, influenced by the romance genre. And in many ways, he's our kind of route into it today. Uh, You know, going back to your earlier question about how do Renaissance romances survive today? In many ways, they're most uh, kind of available to us in these late plays by Shakespeare, which is so influenced by them. As for the sources used by the authors of romances themselves, Elves, they vary. The shorter fictions that were known as novellae, they're often based on Italian or French sources. And the Spanish and Portuguese chivalric cycles look back to the medieval Arthurian cycles. There are other important influences from Europe. There's uh, an Italian romance by Ariosto called Orlando Furioso. That's really important for authors like Sidney and Spencer. Um, it gives them a couple of things. It gives them what's called entrelacement or intertwining of plots, so having multiple plots which you kind of weave around each other in very complicated ways. Um, Ariosto is very much a model for that. And also he gives English authors of romance the figure of the warrior woman. Ariosto has a warrior woman in his romance called Bradamant, and she's a model for warrior women like Britomart in Spencer's Fairy Queen, also Parthenia in Sydney's Arcadia. So Yeah, there are all sorts of different influences kind of coming from all over the place to make a really kind of rich hybrid genre in Renaissance romance. 
here in the U.S., the name Fabio is recognizable as the name for the male lead in a U.S. Harlequin romance novel. And whether or not you've read them, there's a cultural association with that name and the genre. You've mentioned characters like Amadeus, for example, that had to be brought back to life because people knew him so well and didn't want him to leave the series. Are there other similarly culturally recognizable figures commonly associated with romance prose fiction as a genre for the 16th century, where if you saw that character in another place, you would immediately be tied back to, oh, I know where that came from. I knew you were going to ask me about this, and I had to do a bit of research on Fabio because I wasn't familiar with him, I'm afraid. So I had to Google him. And so I understand his image has appeared on nearly 450 romance novel covers, right? Uh, he's a huge figure, yes. And he definitely gets referred to as trash, like Sydney would have. These are yeah. these, that not. So it's definitely in this vein. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that kind of visual phenomenon is just not possible in the 16th century publishing industry because there are no book jackets. Some books do have pictures as frontispieces or title pages, but many of them didn't. So we just haven't got visual imagery around books so much. But I think what we have got is name recognition. And actually, what I would have to do in answer to this question is go back to Amadis de Gaulle again. I think in the 16th century, he is the nearest equivalent. If we're thinking of a kind of iconic figure who kind of stands for the brand of romance, it would have to be him. He's that hero of the Spanish chivalric romance cycle that I've mentioned. Everyone had heard of Amadis. He definitely had brand recognition. And what we find when other people are writing about romance, whether they're dissing romance, whether they're saying, oh, romance isn't as bad as you think it is, they tend to refer to Amadis. He kind of stands for it. So uh, there's an author called Francis Mears, and he uh, lists books which he says are hurtful to youth, and he has Amadis kind of front and centre of that list. But on the other side, actually, Philip Sidney wrote, I have known men that even with reading Amadis de Gaulle, which God knows wants much of a perfect poesy. So he's saying, you know, it's not well written. It's really quite rubbish. But he says, even so, they have found their hearts moved to the exercise of courtesy, liberality, and especially courage. So even this trashy book can inspire quite good values. So I think it's not so much that Amadeus is a kind of sex symbol, as I understand Fabio to be, but certainly he's an iconic figure who personifies the whole genre of romance in the 16th century and the 17th century, actually. I know we're fascinated about this topic and this genre in Thailand. We'd love to explore it further. What are some of your favorite resources you can recommend we use to learn more? And please tell us where we can read your publication on this topic as well. Well, thank you very much. Yes, my own book about this topic is called Women and Romance Fiction in the English Renaissance. That was published by Cambridge University Press in the year 2000. A couple of other books I would recommend. There's one by Laurie Humphrey Newcomb, and this is called Reading Popular Romance in Early Modern England, published by Columbia University Press in 2002. What Newcomb does is she traces the progress of Pandosto, that romance by Robert Greene that we've talked about, which becomes the source of The Winter's Tale. And she kind of sets the history of those two works against each other. So The Winter's Tale we consider kind of high culture because it's Shakespeare, but actually it has its source in Pandosto, which comes to be seen as a courtly romance, and then it gets published in chapbook form. It's continuing to be read 
through the 17th into the 18th century, but it starts to be seen as kind of low and at the opposite extreme from Shakespeare. So it's a really interesting kind of case study in one romance work and its kind of reception history. And the other work I'd recommend is by Paul Saltzman, and it's called English Prose Fiction, 1558 to 1700, A Critical History, published by the Clarendon Press, an imprint of Oxford University Press in 1985. And that's a really useful survey of fiction in Shakespeare's time. Those are excellent resources, and we will link to all of these in the show notes for today's episode, so you can go directly to the one that you would like to start with to learn more about romance fiction in Shakespeare's lifetime. Now, Helen, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so this choice would be in addition to those. Well, I'm really looking forward to this because my choice would be The Urania by Mary Roth, one of the books I've talked about. It's a really long book and it has lots of complex intertwined plots. And it's been a while since I've had the time actually to sit down and read it cover to cover. So it would be a great desert island book. I think um, one of the things I love about it is the way that Roth kind of dances on the boundary between fact and fiction. So she's using the fictional conventions of romance to look at her own difficult emotional experiences from a safe distance, what we might think of as almost kind of in a safe space. And there are lots of scenes within the fiction which do this too. Groups of women tell each other their stories, either a straight autobiography or in a semi-fictionalized way. So there's almost a sense of storytelling as therapy. Um, there's a moment where the main heroine, who's called Pamphylia, asks one of her friends, who's called Lemina, to tell her about what she calls the mistakings, the changes, the crosses that she suffered in love. And Pamphylia says, if none of these you know, yet tell me some such fiction. If you can't tell me stuff from your life, just make something up, anything. I just want to hear stories about misfortune in love. And the added twist here is that both Pamphylia and Lamina, both the women in this scene, are themselves fictional versions of Mary Roth. So we've got stories within stories. And I love the uh, yeah, the kind of complexity of that structure and how, as I say, it's, it's, it's playing on the boundaries of fact and fiction. I think that's an excellent selection. And having heard you describe it, I'm excited to read it myself. So I think that's a perfect <laughs> selection for your desert island pick. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, last year I published a book called The Elizabethan Mind, and that's an exploration of the many conflicting ideas that Shakespeare and his contemporaries held about the mind and its relation to the body, the soul and the self. And one of the chapters that I particularly enjoyed researching was on Elizabethan ideas about the imagination. And within that, I have a short section about dreams. And I had lots of research for that that I just didn't get to use and that I was really fascinated by. So I'd really, I really want to develop that to write a book specifically on dreams in Shakespeare's time. So it would cover Elizabethan beliefs and debates about dreams because there was lots of kind of contestation of whether dreams are meaningful or not. It would cover real Elizabethans who kept dream journals and also how the genre of dream vision was used by writers to address controversial subjects because you could use that old formula. It's, it was just a dream. Um, so it would cover all of that and then look at Shakespeare and how in light of all of that, Shakespeare is making use of dreams in his own works where they they feature actually very frequently that's fascinating topic i'm so excited to learn more about this history hopefully when you get all of that put together we can invite you back to share more with us about dreams in elizabethan england how much fun 
Yeah, I would love that. Thank you. Helen Hackett, thank you so much for being here this week, introducing us to the romance fiction genre for Shakespeare's Lifetime. I've really enjoyed talking with you and exploring this further. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you'd like to see visual elements that coordinate with the history you're learning about today, along with direct links to the recommended resources Helen suggests that you check out to learn more about romance fiction in Shakespeare's lifetime, you will want to check out the show notes for today's episode. The show notes are a great place to connect not only with me, but with the guests themselves, because we have a comment section associated with our show notes where you can ask questions or leave a comment about the episode and guests are notified when you leave a comment there. So if you'd like to talk with me and add your voice to our conversation, today. The show notes are a great place to do that. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 305. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 305. If you love Shakespeare history and really want to dive into turn of the 17th century England for yourself and try out some of the history that we talk about here on the show, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life on Patreon. Members get to go beyond the episode to see behind-the-scenes content of the making of our show and access over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms. And there's special extras there, too, including video versions of the podcast, printable educator resources, and a collection of activity kits that let you try Try out some of the games, recipes, and crafts you learn about here on our podcast right at home with items you may already have in your house but can easily find at your local market or store. If you'd like to step inside that Shakespeare life and bring a piece of the 16th and 17th century England home with you, then join us today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.